Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny is joined by former police captain and author Robert L. Snow to chat about his incredible transformation from past life skeptic to believer, all chronicled in his book, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. So tune in and hear how an offhand dare to undergo a past life regression later evolved into corroborated evidence of Bob's past life as a little-known 19th century American artist. And now we welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we are here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access the show archives. Uh, We put those up on the station website, which is 1150kknw.com. And we also put the show on iTunes and Podcast One, if you like to access those by podcast. That's my favorite way to do it. Um, and Mine too. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> no, these it is. days, I mean, yeah, really. You know, it is. I think we're kind of uh, like rare creatures still doing live radio, right, Benny? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I love that rare creatures. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that we get to have it both ways. Yeah. So we get the live experience and it goes yeah. up in the podcast. Brings our energy up. Exactly. I know there's something special about mm-hmm. being in the studio, Benny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay. So I, I'm. So, you know, on this show, we always have an honor of getting to speak with folks who, you know, my favorite, I think, content that I ever talk to folks about is near-death experiences, shared-death experiences, reincarnation, some of those more mystical, paranormal phenomenon. Um, And, you know, we talk to the experiencers, we talk to the researchers. And so today we've got a special show for you. Um, So I have to give a little shout out to Wendy Rose Williams, who you all may know in the Seattle area. She has not only been a guest on the show, she's been kind enough to come on the show and interview me about my book when it came out. And so Wendy is out and about in Seattle, and she is um, a very talented intuitive who does past life regression work, among other things. Um, And so she uh, connected me with our guest today or made me aware of his work, and I'm so glad that she did. Um, This was not a story I was familiar with. But as I was telling our guests before we went live, um, even among this literature that's out there, we're going to be specifically talking about past lives and uh, past life regression therapy today. Um, but I believe his story is unique. And it's one of those rare cases. And I'm going to I will I will I definitely want to ask him about this. But it reminds me a little bit about um, Eben Alexander, who had a near death experience. And the reason being is because. Eben Alexander was a neurosurgeon, and so when he had a um, a rare form of meningitis that took the part of the brain that scientists usually associate with consciousness, took it completely offline for about seven days, he had a really interesting perspective on his near-death experience because he could speak to it not only as an experiencer but a scientist. In a very similar way, and I'll read our guest bio here, but I think that this guest is in one of those rare, unique positions to be able to speak to something from a point of view that lends it extra credibility and for those folks out there who might be skeptics, I do believe people like our guest today, Robert Snow, um, or he goes by Bob, I believe we'll have to ask him what he wants to go by on uh, when I say bring him on. But these are people, um, you know, that have that are, I think, uniquely positioned to bring forward material as 
you know, our human species is evolving as things are becoming more mainstream, as we're learning more about the uh, nature of our universe and who we are as beings. So anyway, with that very long, I did not intend to dive that deep in our little preface to bringing our guest on, but all that to say, I'm really excited. And I think you're going to love his story um, and the book, uh, which uh, as Benny mentioned in our intro, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic, and also a very clever name of a title, and you'll find out more why. But okay, so official bio, Robert L. Snow served for 38 years at the Indianapolis Police Department, retiring in 2007 with the rank of captain. While at the police department, he served in such capacities as police department executive officer, captain of detectives, and uh, I think this is a very prestigious uh, position among police departments. He was also commander of the homicide branch. Uh, Robert L. Snow has also been a publishing writer for over 30 years. He has had over 100 articles and short stories published in such magazines as Playboy, Reader's Digest, The National Enquirer, The Writer, Police, The Saint Detective Magazine, and others. In addition, he has had 20 books published. Um, almost all of Captain Snow's published works, uh, today's book that we're going to talk about being a big exception there too, but most all of Captain Snow's published works were written so that readers could use his knowledge of law enforcement to better protect themselves and their loved ones. Um, so again, the book we'll be talking about here today is Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. Um, Captain Snow, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Um, and do you? How do you prefer to be called? I should have asked you that before Bob, we go Bob, there. Yeah. Okay. No one calls me. Only ever called me Robert. My mother when I was in trouble. Okay. So everybody, everybody calls me Bob. Yeah. Yeah. You're not in trouble here. That's for sure. You're good. You're good. Oh well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And I, I, um, yeah. And again, a, a thank you and a shout out to Wendy Rose Williams who connected us. So I'm not sure what your connection is to her, but I'm grateful that you're here. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's dive in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your background first, because you have a very decorated career as um, a, a, a detective and a police captain. Um, but you didn't actually set out to be a police officer. You wanted to be a writer, if uh, I you know remember correctly from your book. So I'm curious, can you share a little bit about how you ended up spending 38 years um, uh, in the police department um, when you originally set out perhaps to be a writer? Yeah, you're right. When I was growing up, I, being a police officer never never occurred to me. At my earliest age, and I always wanted to be a writer. I, I have always admired writers, and I read a lot when I was young, and I always wanted to be one. But uh, I was in the military during the Vietnam War, and after my discharge, I got out and I needed a job. I mean, being a writer, you know, wanting to be a writer is nice, but it takes a long time. You have to have a job in between times. Well, my brother had joined the police department about a year before that, and he said, "Well, hey, come on down. They're they're, they're you're hiring. It's the war is still going on, then. They're really desperate for applicants." So I went down, you know, just uh, just out of curiosity, and signed up. Next thing I know, I was there 38 years. <laughs> but actually, it was very fortuitous because number one, it was a good job, a good and it was a good paying job. It gave me stability to be able to do my writing. But more important than that give me lots and lots and lots of material to write about. I mean, it's nice saying you want to be a writer, but you have to have material that readers be interested in. And being in law enforcement gave me a lot, a lot of information. So it turned out very fortuitous that I just kind of stumbled into the police department to help because it helped, you know, not only stabilize my life, but also give me material for my writing career. 
Absolutely. And then you also, um, from your book, I learned you ended up, um, you graduated summa cum laude at Indiana State or Indiana University. And then you were, you went to graduate school for psychology at the University of Wisconsin. And so I, that's a very um, uh, interesting, I would think, um, what you bring from that education, what you brought into your police work, sounds like that would have been a pretty good combo. Yes, it was. It, it, it helped. It, it really did. I mean, it, especially the psych, I, ma- I majored in psychology and because it, it, you want to get a, a kind of an inside view of what makes people work, you yeah. know, what makes what they think and what their, what their motivations are, because a lot of, a lot of, a lot of police work is changing people's motivations. So yeah, the education did help quite yeah. a bit. Yes. And then you spent 22 years as a captain uh, in the Indian Indianapolis Police Department. That must have been quite an experience. It was. It was. It was great. I, I said I worked a lot of different jobs. Homicide probably one of my my better. I really I really enjoyed that work there because you're in homicide. You're fight. You're fighting for victims who can't fight for themselves. Yeah. I mean, your victims are gone and somebody has to stand up for them and, and bring justice. And that's what homicide does. They fight, they fight for the victims because the victims simply can't fight for themselves. Yes, and, and, and um, one of the things I think that will factor into our conversation for sure is that um, once you uh, actually published this book, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic, um, that you had some concerns going in um, about how that might affect your uh, career, both as a, a writer, primarily as, as we said in your bio, that the, these were law enforcement and police procedure books. Um, you were, had some concerns about how coming forward with this past life story would affect not only your career as a writer, but also as um, um, your your work in the police department. And and from what I understand, you're when you became captain of the homicide branch, the numbers um, it just you had incredible numbers. Not only did the numbers go down about how many homicides were happening, but the number of solved cases went up or something. I had a really good crew of men and women work for me. I really did. They did a fantastic job. Actually, when I was there, we had a uh, 83% clearance rate, which for a city our size is exceptional. It what is, really is. What is clearance, clearance rate for just for someone, a layperson like me? What exactly does that yeah. mean? That means someone has been arrested or there was extraordinary circumstances that, that make the case cleared, such as someone, all the participants are dead or... Mm-hmm. They pled, they pled guilty to other crimes, but admitted this one too. Just basically means the, the case is solved as far as the police department is concerned. Okay. Yeah, so with that kind of laying that foundation, this is what's going on in your life. This is who you were. Um, and before we went on air, you said, I think your phrase was that you kind of got dragged into this whole past life regression thing, kicking and screaming. It, it was not somewhere you intended to go. So tell us a little bit about how you go from a very – you know, just the facts, skeptic to someone who now uh, is is a full believer. Well, as you, as you told uh, people earlier, I'm, I'm a writer and I've been a writer for a lot of years. But when you're a writer, you can't just write. You also have to read and you have to read a lot and not just from your area, from all areas. You, you have to see how people handle, how writers handle things. Do they handle something well or poorly and how they did it. So I've always been a, a very, very avid reader. Well, one time I ran to a book. It was called Coming Back by Dr. Raymond Moody. And it was one. Of, it was actually one of the book book club selections of the month, I think. And uh, Dr. Moody had, re, had previously done near death experience uh, 
a lot of work with near-death experience. Well, apparently he had, a, he had a friend who was a psychologist who did past life regression therapy. And she talked Dr. Moody into having a past life regression therapy uh, session. Well, she hypnotized him and he supposedly went back to eight past lives and all. The book's very well written and it's very interesting, but interesting, but more interesting at the very last of the book, he kind of hedges and says, eh, I don't know what this really was. It <laughs> may have been, it may have been just my imagination or some old subconscious memories. And that's kind of why I felt after I read the book, it all sounds very fanciful and pretty and nice, but I didn't think it was really true. And uh, Dr. Moody wasn't convinced either. So I basically just forgot about the book on other reading. Well, a few months later, I was at a party and uh, we had a lady there who was a practicing psychologist, but also a police detective. And I was talking to her at the party and we were making chit chat about, you know, TV programs, movies we'd seen and then kind of got around the books. And I remembered this book and I told her about reading the book and she asked me what I thought about it. At the time, I didn't know that she used past life regression therapy in her uh, practice. And I kind of made fun of it. I thought it was just, I told her I thought it was silly. This is people wanting to be able to blame their problems in this life on something that, you know, they can't control and say, well, I'm only a failure in this life because of a past life type thing. You know, mm -hmm. my life is really, really in the, in the dumps because of a past life type thing. I thought it was just weak people looking for excuses. Well, it was kind of late in the party and I had a bit to drink. I think I got kind of obnoxious really <laughs> because she, she finally at the end just said, if you think it's so silly, I want you to try it and, I, and, and see for yourself. Now, I first said, no, I'm not doing that. But then it got the point, the daring thing. Oh, you're scared. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to ask a man if you're scared. You know, you're not going to. So a bit, I kind of reluctantly said, yeah, okay, I'll try it and show you how silly it is. Yeah. Well, the next morning I get up and, you know, you're more clear headed and I wasn't going to do it. I thought, this is silly. I'm not going to do this. But it's kind of funny. Every, it seemed like from then on, I would run into this woman constantly. Now, before <laughs> this, I didn't, I didn't see her that maybe once a month or so. It seemed like I'd run to her constantly. Because at the party, she had given me the name and number of her friend of hers who did past life regression therapy and told me, well, call her make, and make a, an appointment. And every time I'd see her, she'd say, have you made the appointment? And I'd make up some excuse, but, you know, I had three meetings and so reports and doing everything. But I just kept running to her constantly. You say, oh, God, there she is. You know, you're looking for a back stairway. You just hear her down the hallway. <laughs> and I, so finally, I thought, this is silly, Bob. I mean, I did enough time. I thought, this is silly. I'm just going to do this and get it over with. And I'm going to show her how stupid all this is. So I called the lady. It was a Dr. Mary Ellen Griffith. This is her friend, and I made an appointment. I thought what I what I planned. I thought I would go there. I would cooperate one hundred percent, whatever Dr. Griffin wanted to do, and and I would show this, this psychologist, the friend that at the police department, that how silly it all was. Nothing happened because it it's foolishness. And I really didn't believe at the time that I could be hypnotized. I thought it was weak, weak-willed people who could be hypnotized, yeah. and I didn't really believe it could happen. And so that's, so I basically called Dr. Griffith and made an appointment to go to her office for a past life regression therapy session. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I went and seen her. She had a very nice, very nice lady, very, very cordial, very nice. And she asked me why I was there, if I had some kind of problems. I said, no, no, I'm just interested in past life regression. I'd like to try it. And she didn't seem to have any problem with that. So we sit down on the couch. We just talked for a little bit first about various things. And so then she finally told me, so, okay, now close your eyes and start and tell me about your college graduation. And I told her she wanted, she was a lot big in the imagery and to, you know, describe things vividly and in, in detail. And we talk about high school and junior high and elementary school. And I could see what she was doing. You know, she's going earlier and earlier and earlier in my life. 
So finally, she said, okay, let's begin. She said, can you see a balloon? Well, I'm sitting on this really rather hard couch, and I could see a purple blob in my eye. You know, my eyes closed. I know what it was. It was the light coming through the window to right. But she said, can you see a balloon? I said, yeah, I can see a balloon. So it's a purple balloon. She said, okay. So I said, imagine you're in the balloon. Now we're taking it up. Okay. Okay. So we're, so I'm trying to imagine. I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm decided I'm going to be 100% cooperative. I'm going to do everything she asked me to do so I could show the department of psychologists how silly it all was. <laughs> so anyway, she said, okay, they take it up. It was funny because I'm sitting there. It looked like looking down, I could see little points of light down below me. But I just assumed at the time it was glare off the floor. Yeah. So anyway, so we were on the balloon. I'm in the balloon. I'm trying to imagine being the balloon like she asked me to. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, now I want you to reach up above you. And there's a lever to pull. It'll take you down. So I'd imagine doing that. Okay. So I did it. And she said, now land. Now, funny, I couldn't, nothing happened. I mean, we went through this at least a dozen times or more. Okay, pull the lever and I'll land here. I'll land here. Nothing, but nothing happened. Again, I'm thinking this is her daydream, not mine. I'm not going to imagine anything. It's not, it's not real. I'm, I'm just, nothing happened. But she mm-hmm. didn't really, she didn't seem upset. She said, okay. So these are obviously places you don't want to go. She says, now see if you can imagine a mountain. So I'm like thinking, I, okay, and I can imagine a mountain. And she said, I'll take the balloon to the mountain. Well, this time I could. The, the, I could see the balloon. I could imagine it laying on the mountain. It's funny, when I stepped out of the balloon, I could see there was a log cabin, but the logs were going vertical rather than horizontal. Mm. And I found out later, one of my writers later, one of my readers later wrote me and told me that's how the French built their cabins. Mm. So anyway, she said, okay, go into the side. What do you see? So I go inside. I don't see anything. It's, again, this is her daydream, not mine. I ain't seen anything. So she said, okay, imagine a meal. said, imagine this light. I'm, I'm, I'm cooperating. I'm trying to imagine all this stuff. She said, okay, now leave the cabin. She says, we're going to walk down some steps. There's some steps leading down to a valley. I said, I want you to walk down these steps. And I'm going to count as you walk. I said, I want you to go back to the very first life you lived on earth, the very first time you were here on earth. I want you, I'm, I'm still trying to cooperate. I'm just like, oh, what am I doing here? This is so silly. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, well, I imagine myself walking down the steps, and she's counting. She goes 12, and she's getting the words getting longer, 11, 10. I'm thinking, oh, God, this is like the stuff you see on the movies of stage hypnosis, you know. <laughs> I think it's, I, I'm really thinking how silly it's all is. But interesting, when she got to one, something really bizarre happened. I was in a valley. I don't mean I was imagining I was in a valley or, you know, it's a daydream valley. I was in a valley. It was just vivid, vividly clear. Yeah. And I knew I wasn't there. I knew that I was still in her office. I could feel the capture really hard. I could feel the couch. I mean, I could hear noise out the window to the right. But at the same time, I was in the valley. And it was so clear. I could see veins. There was a, I was walking along a path. And there was a bush next to me. I could see the veins and the leaves. Mm. And also, as I walk along, I can feel the breeze blow my face. Now, at the time, I'm just assuming this is the air conditioning in the office. But I could feel a breeze blowing. I could see the leaves moving. And I could feel a breeze blowing. So she said, okay, so look down and describe yourself. So I look down, I see a really pair of really dirty, gnarly feet, and I'm wearing some kind of really dirty matted fur. And my, my left hand I'm carrying looks like a big piece of a tree limb. Mm-hmm. I know what, everybody knows what a caveman looks like. Come on. I mean, I've seen movies and TV programs, and I just, I know what's going on. And I'm just, I, so I'm just, I'm describing to myself, start thinking again. And it was actually, to tell you the truth, it was actually kind of interesting. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't scary or frightening. It was just kind of interesting because, I mean, I knew I wasn't there, but at the same time I was. It was that vividly clear. Mm-hmm. Then something, something really kind of bizarre happened is I started talking before I knew what I was going to say. I mean, in, in life, you used to have a second or a half second to think what you're going to say before you say it. 
In this case, I started saying things without knowing I was going to just blur it out because suddenly I knew what the person, the, the body I was in, what he thought. And I realized this is where I lived. Mm-hmm. I told, I told the girlfriend, I live here. There's a cave up on the hill where I live. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it. I didn't have any idea I was going to say this. So she said, okay, go to the cave. And this, so I, there's about three or four seconds of kind of a gray fog and I'm staying at entrance to the cave. Now, this is really interesting because when I walked into the cave, whoever lived there wasn't very hygienic and I had to smell <laughs> this awful stench. And again, I could imagine where this come from. I, but I, at the time, I, I figured this is hypnosis about you ain't as strong as you thought you were. You've been hypnotized. That's all there is to it. This mm. is just hypnosis playing tricks on your mind. Mm. So I described the cave to Dr. Griffith. She said, okay, now go to your death. Says go to your death. Tell me what you see. So again, about there's about three or four minutes of gray fog where you can't see anything. Now all of a sudden, I'm not in the body anymore. I'm floating above it, and I can see on the cave, the cave floor is a little kind of skinny man wrapped in furs, and he's coughing and shaking, and you can tell he, he was dying. Yeah. And she, the doctor said, "Okay." So then I described it all to her. She said, "Okay, now go out of the cave, look over the valley. You see a light." And I go out of the cave, and sure enough, over the over the, over the valley, there's a big bright light. She said. Now, before you go into light, says, what was the purpose of this life? I says, and again, I'm talking, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say. I, 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 I'm more stunned anyway, as complete whenever <laughs> I say something. I told her, I said, the point of my life was to experience loneliness. I didn't have anyone in this life. I was totally alone my whole life. Yeah. She said, okay, now go into the light then and go to a life when you did have someone. So I go, I go into the light. And again, there's oh, three or four seconds of gray fog. And all of a sudden, then this is kind of like, I don't know if people are probably young people don't know this, but it used to be when you go like to a movie theater, a lot of times the movies start and it'd be all blurry mm-hmm. and it'd take a second or two and they come into focus, sharp focus. Well, this was just what I, at first it's everything's blurry. And I'm looking around and all of a sudden come to focus and I'm on the, I'm walking along a city street and I'm looking around. I'm guessing it had to be the late 1800s because mm-hmm. there were gas lights and I didn't see any automobiles, but a bunch of horse drawn vehicles mm-hmm. and i'm and i'm getting i'm just walking down the street and it's funny if anything i could feel it was a hot day i could feel the sun beating down on me now mm-hmm. i'm inside the closed office so again i i'm realizing this is the hypnosis she <laughs> said so she says okay look down describe yourself so i looked down i i'm really dressed very well i've described that to her not my outfit to her and i told her I'm, i have a cane i said it's not a cane because i have to walk it's a fancy it's a fancy walking stick she said okay so where are you going i said i'm going to meet a woman she said, okay. So where are you going? So I told her, and again, I'm speaking, I'm just talking, I'm, I'm yapping. I have no idea what I'm going to say. I told her, we're going to, a, we're, we're going to an outdoor cafe. She says, what do you order? Says, I said, she orders some kind of special water and I order a glass of wine. So we talked about this a while and she said, okay, now go five years in the future. So five years in the future, I'm standing in a hallway and I'm having this really vigorous argument with, with a woman. I'm, I'm assuming it's my wife, but we're having a real vigorous argument about money. And I just finally turn and walk away. And I walk down the hallway into this room. It's a very large room. And I look around. There's a the whole ceiling is a skylight. And to the right, there's a wall of all windows. And there are just dozens of paintings hanging around there. Mm-hmm. And again, like with the caveman thing, I suddenly realize who I am in this life. I tell her, this is my studio. I'm a painter. Mm. And I described it. Again, I described the studio and all the paintings to her and everything. And we talked about it. She said, okay, now go five years in the future. So I go five years. And all of a sudden, I'm at some kind of party. And I can tell I'm the guest of honor because people congratulate me. And there's everybody's come up and pat me on the shoulder, congratulate me and all. And 
I could feel this, how this person felt. This was a moment of real intense happiness for him. I mean, it was one of those things where you could just feel the happiness from it. Yeah. So doctor, doctor, I had no idea what we were celebrating, but apparently I was a guest to honor. So Dr. Griff said, okay, he said, now go, go, go five years, but I didn't. This is interesting. People think when you're in hypnosis that you're under total control of the hypnotist. You're really not. Because Dr. Griffith told me three or four times to go, to go five years, and I didn't. Only because if you think about how many times in your life do you really experience intense happiness? You know, not that often, not that often at all. This felt, it was really a good feeling. So I, I hung around a bit. Yeah. So anyway, she said, okay, now go five years. So I went five years, and I was in a, a large garden, a huge garden somewhere where I was painting. And we talked about that for a bit. She said, okay, now I want you to, say, I want you to go to your death and tell me what, what did you regret about this life? So I, I mean, again, I'm blabbering. I'm just, I've said, I'm, I was, I regretted that we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. She said, okay, now go to your death. Tell me what you see. So I see myself passing up. I'm laying on a, like a bed and I pass out. Everybody's seen movies about this. Everybody's seen TV shows. That's all. What I knew that's all it was at the time. I see myself, my soul passed on my body. And I go up through a, uh, the ceiling of the building. And, and it's, I'm over a huge city. There are, I, when I look around, there's lights to the horizon in all directions. I have no idea where I'm at, but it's a huge city. So Dr. Griff said, okay, now go into, is there a light? And there was, he said, go into the light. But again, she wasn't really in control because I, I didn't do it. Instead, I started, I found myself flying through some woods. Now, you're saying I could tell it wasn't, it, it, it looked like a real cold, blustery night, mm. but it wasn't winter yet because the trees still had leaves on them. So I assumed it was a late uh, winter, it was a late fall night. So anyway, next thing I know, I'm on the second or third floor of a mansion. I'm looking in the window. There's a room, there's a big fire in a fireplace. Nobody's in the room, big fire in a fireplace. And over the fireplace is a painting. And it's one of mine. Mm. And I told Darth Griffin, I wonder, I wonder, it was a still life. It was had a bottle and fruit and real bright colors. And Darth, I told Darth Griffin, I want to see one of my paintings again before I left, mm. before I left this world. So then after that, I went, she said, go, go, go into the light. So I went to the light. She, she says, now I want you to go to a life you experience as a female. And I remember laughing myself. Yeah. I said, yeah, that's going to happen. Well, after three or four, three or four seconds of fog, I'm back into another body. But I, and I looked down, I could tell it was a female body. Now, this has really got me kind of flustered because I'm thinking, because I'm thinking at my time, this is, has to be just a bunch of subconscious memories I'm bringing up and kind of forming together to make a story. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking, okay, where would this memory come from type thing? So anyway, I'm I'm standing in some woods, but it's not the woods, it's a flat, not like the valley. It's a flat area. And the tree and I'm standing in front of this altar and it's a circuit, it's a circuit altar with pillars all around it. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Griffith said, Okay, where are you at? And I don't know, I just blurred out. I said, I'm in Greece. Mm -hmm. He says, What do you do? I says, I work at this altar. Me and some other girls bring down things to the altar. So she had me describe myself and I told her. You know what I what I look like, and I told that all the girls here are single, and they all have to be pretty and virgins to work at the, at work at this place. And she said, "Okay." We described it. And she says, "Okay, go." You know, yeah, go five years ahead in the future. Mm -hmm. So I go, I go five years again. There's this gray fog. Next thing, I'm sitting in this wagon. It's being drawn. It's being pulled by look like oxen. And I there's an old old man sitting next to me. I look to my right, and there's a little girl sitting next to me and i knew for, that that was this this woman's uh, little little daughter in this life but interesting enough she was someone i recognized from my present life yeah. she was my stepdaughter 
but she wasn't the age she was at the when I took had this regression. She was a high schooler. This this was how she looked when, I, when her mother and I first got married. First got married, huh. I can recognize her. But I, I and I knew what had happened. Doctor Griff asked what happened, and again I knew what this person thinking. Apparently, I obviously wasn't a virgin any longer, so apparently I didn't work at the altar anymore. <laughs> and the the temple, the the altar people had apparently either given me or sold me to this man. And so we went. He had a big farm. Went to a, to his farm, and but he died real soon afterward. After we got there, and so I, what I, I brought my daughter back to the temple and gave her to the temple to work there. Uh-huh. And I kept trying to tell myself over and over, boy, this is great for her. It's a great honor. But in my in my mind, I felt this terrible guilt. And I'm at the time, I'm thinking, silly. I said, I don't know. This is all make up story. But I could feel it. it. It felt like concrete blocks on my chest. The guilt I felt. Like what I was really doing was abandoning her because mm-hmm. life would be a lot easier if I'd have a little girl tagging along with me. Right. And I basically gave my daughter up, and I felt terrible guilt. And so I, she said, okay, now go go to your death. And apparently, I'd gone to some. I had moved to some village that did a lot of fishing because I, I saw myself dying in a fishing accident. I could feel myself caught in a in a well in a net, and I could suddenly taste salt water for a few seconds. I could taste salt water, and I, I apparently drowned. Yeah. So anyway, Doctor Griffith said, "Okay, so okay, she need need going to light. Believe me, I couldn't wait to get out this light. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, the guilt the guilt was just over, it was mm-hmm. it was amazing because I knew at the time I thought how silly this is. Wow, this is all make believe. This is not true. I could feel this terrible guilt about banging my daughter. She told me, "So okay, Bob, I want you to go back to your most present life before Bob Snow I said go to life you live before you were your most present one. So again, there's three or four minutes of gray fog." And all of a sudden, I realized I'm back in the artist's body again. Hmm. I immediately knew who I was. But I'm painting a portrait. And interesting enough, it's a portrait of a hunchback woman. The woman who posed me was a hunchback. And I thought how really strange that was. And I remember telling Dr. Griffith, I'm painting a portrait. I said, I hate painting portraits, but I have to. I need the money. And I can feel this person had a desperate need for money. I said, he kept, like I said it two or three times, I don't like painting portraits, but I need the money. Hmm. So... Anyway, so I, the third thing, I, I could see the painting. I could see every brushstroke of painting. I could see it was just about completed. So next, so Dr. Griffith said, okay. says, and she, we talked about this. I said, go five years. What do you see? Mm-hmm. And I'm at some place having a real vigorous argument with somebody about the lighting for one of my paintings. And so we talked about that for a bit. She said, okay, go five years. So I went five years. I'm in a garden, and I could hear piano music. And I walked into the house. My wife is playing a piano for a bunch of people standing around the piano. So we talk about it again. And she said, okay, go open up, go five years. So I go out again to go with the gray fog. But before I, before I went to another scene, I could all of a sudden, I just blurred out. I said, she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now I had no idea, not a clue who I was talking about, but I knew whoever it was, it was someone crucially important to this artist, someone vitally important to his life, some woman who was very important. Then all of a sudden, the recorder, I had brought a recorder along. I had brought a recorder. Doc, Dr. Griffith said, it's fine. I brought a recorder along because I want to record all this so I could prove to the psychologist how silly it was that nothing happened. And all of a sudden, it snapped off the loud click and opened my eyes, and that was it. The session mm-hmm. was over. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm really flustered. <laughs> I'm, I mean, because, you know, I, I come in there expect this is going to be a bunch of silly hokum. I'm, nothing's going to happen. And here I've been sitting for the last half hour, 40 minutes, just blabbering away. And I was really confused i didn't know and i remember dr griffin asked me do you see how this relates to your present life and at the moment i really couldn't i was i was too flustered by the whole thing 
So I just basically got, you know, they said, you know, I got out of there. I went and sat in my car. I sat there for a while, just trying to figure out what the hell just happened. Yeah. I couldn't figure out what happened. And, you know, because the, the, the problem wasn't the, the hypnosis. The problem was the clarity of it. I mean, the clarity was just, it was just as vivid as in, real, as in real life. I could see minute details of this. And if I closed my eyes, I could still see him. Actually, for the first couple of years after regression, if I closed my eyes, I could still see every scene. I could see him as clear mm. as it was when it happened. Yeah. But finally, I just told Bob, this is silly. This is just subconscious memories of movies and books and things that happened. It's all just jumbled up. And it would, you brought it up and just tried to piece it together, make a story out of it. It's all just, just forget about it. Which sounds like good advice, but I didn't. <laughs> I simply could not forget about it. It, I would, it, it, it just, it was my mind constantly. I mean, I would think about this thing a hundred times a day and I would close my eyes. I could still see myself painting the painting. I could see all the various scenes, but I closed my eyes. Yeah, and it it got to the point of being almost I, I I could tell I was become obsessed with this. Now the police officer for a long time I know that people with obsessions it seldom turns out well for them. Right, you have a really deep obsession it it really doesn't seldom ever turn out well. So I decided, Bob, you've got to break this. You can't do this every day. That's all you're thinking about constantly is this. So I decided we got to break it. So I decided what I need to do. The only thing I could really base it on that I saw two paintings. I thought, now, if you could find those paintings, you would say, oh, yeah, that's where I saw, you know, I saw that an exhibition somewhere. I read a blurb on the artist, and that's how I knew all about this stuff. That's how I knew it all. It was just all subconscious memories. So my plan was I would find one of the two, either the still life I saw in the house after I had died or the portrait of the punchback woman. I mean, again, I thought, how many portraits of hunchback women can there be? Right. So I thought what I need to do is go to the library, go to their art section. It should be pretty easy to find these and just find them. And then you'll remember where you saw them at. So I did that. So for my lunch hour for the next month or two, I didn't realize they never public library had an awful lot of hundreds of art books, but I went through every single one, every single one. I didn't find either painting. Yeah. So I thought, well, I just don't make any sense. Now you, you couldn't just make those. The problem was they were so clear. Like I said, at the, with the, uh, hunchback woman. I could see every every brushstroke. I knew they had to. You know, they had to have seen them somewhere. But how could you have that kind of recall? And so I said, well, okay. Well, maybe I need to visit some. Go somewhere else. So I started going to various bookstores, Borders and Half Price Books and Barnes and Noble because they had art books the library didn't have. And yeah. I started going through all those books. And again, after a month or two, I didn't find anything. So I started calling. I started calling art galleries around Indianapolis. Now. And again, this this was about before this all happened before the internet. So in those days, you just couldn't put an you know in a search engine and say you know punchback woman painting and find something. And right. In those right. days, you had to go go to libraries and pull you know books off shelves, or you had to call people. So I called a number of galleries to see if they knew where these paintings were. And most no no nobody nobody did. In those days, there was no of course there wasn't no internet, so there was no central listing of paintings anywhere. Right. Most of them told me you'd have to know who had it or who likely had it in order to find it. So again, I wasn't ready to give up. So what I actually did, I went to a new age bookstore in Annapolis mm -hmm. and bought a couple of books on past life regression. I thought maybe if I understood what happened during the regression, I could understand where these things came from. So I read several books and interesting, I found it very interesting that a number of people have had experiences very similar to mine. But one of the books had a part in the back for, it had like a script for self-hypnosis. 
And I thought, well, maybe I'll try that, you know, and see if I see if, mm-hmm. believe me, self-help is a lot harder, a lot harder to do than people think it is. It's a lot yeah. harder to do. So I tried that a couple of times. I go up to my office, lock my door here and then, and try it. And only twice, I did it probably a dozen times, tried it. And only twice, I could feel myself going to the state I was in Dr. Griffith's office, but it only lasts for just a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. Both times, I would see the number 1917. Both times, then all of a sudden, be click, you're, and it's gone. So finally, I decided, you know, again, I was just talking about earlier, I had, we had an 83% clearance rate for murders in Indianapolis while I was there. Yeah. But that still means 17% of the cases went unsolved every year. 17% of the murders did not get solved. Right. And that basically because you don't have, you follow the evidence to the end, there's not enough evidence to do anything. Right. Well, I figure that's what this case is. There's, there's no evidence. There's not any left. I just have to shelf it and forget about it. There's nothing more I can do. Well, that sounds good. But I, I shelved it, but I still thought about it a lot. Well, a month or two later, it was coming up for my wife's night anniversary in April, and we wanted to take a trip somewhere neither of us had been, been. So she called me one morning and said, how about New Orleans? I thought, well, that's not like fun. I'd never been to New Orleans. She. So we planned a trip into New Orleans. So we spent a week there doing all kinds of things in New Orleans. Well, there's enough. No, we'd go to the French Quarter at nighttime and, you know, have a drink, have a couple of drinks and listen to music and everything. But I noticed on the way into the French Quarter, there were lots of really cool stores, uh, antique store, memorabilia stores, arts, art galleries. They were always closed when we were going in because it was late at night when we go there. So our last day there, our plane didn't leave till the, late the, until that evening. So we had all day and I told her, want me to go with the shopping in the, in the uh, French Quarter. That's not a good idea. So we went down. We went with a bunch of stores. We finally got to Royal Street. In those days, Royal Street was art galleries, mostly almost all, almost all art galleries. So we started going to the art gallery and had a lot of big, beautiful paintings. By somebody, I even recognized some of the artist paintings. But they, I noticed we was going on the street, the, the galleries are getting smaller and the painting, the painters more obscure. And so we went and we went got to a gallery at the very end of the street. It's a small gallery and there's a, it was two story and inside there was signs of modern art upstairs. My wife likes modern art. I don't. So she went upstairs and I was walking along the floor, just looking at paintings. I didn't recognize any of the paintings. I didn't recognize any of the artists, but I'm getting to the corner and there's a portrait on an easel and I start to walk by and I'm stopped. It's just like I'm froze my tracks and turn around. Look, it's the hunchback woman. Oh, man. Now, you know, I was a police officer for 38 years, and I would had a lot of frightening, scary situations, a lot of them. But in those cases, you know what to do. You've had training experience, and you know what your best course, what your course, the best course of action to take is. Mm-hmm. In, this, in this case, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I, first, I tell myself, this is not that it looks like it. It's close. It's not it. But I look at the painting, I close my eyes, and I can still see every brushstroke. Yeah. And it was the painting. Now, you know, now these kind of things might happen in movies and on you know, TV. They don't happen in real life. I mean, what are the what are the they don't what are the odds of all of all all this searching, all these things, and just stumble onto by accident on a vacation in New Orleans? So I'm thinking yeah. to myself, okay, Bob, maybe you're not here. Maybe you're in a nursing home or a hospital, <laughs> and you just you're just del- you're just having a delusion. Because I mean, I'm I'm desperately grasp, grasping for how could how could how could this be? How this is not possible. Yeah. So if I'm, I'm looking at this thing for about four or five minutes and finally uh, one of the salesmen saw me and I come over and said, boy, I bet you think how nice I look over your fireplace. <laughs> right? That's what I want, a hunchback woman. I don't know my fireplace, but anyway, <laughs> and I remember, I remember, I think I wanted $5,000 or something for it, but 
paintings are like used cars. It may say that, but you pay, you can negotiate. Right. Anyway, I told him, I said, I don't know the artist. Who's the artist on this? He says, well, come here. I got a little bio on him. So he took me over and he gave me this. He went to a desk and found this piece of paper. that had about a paragraph or so of the artist. The artist's name is J. Carol Beckwith. And I read the, the bio. It was real short, maybe a paragraph most. But immediately I got five confirmations of what I'd seen in the regression that number one, there was a painting. There actually was a painting of a hunchback woman. Yep. And there's enough. He, that, Ed Beckwith was born in 1852. He died in 1917. Yeah. And I remember seeing the word in one seven. I thought, also, he had lived during the 19th century and that he had won some awards in his life. And I remember at the party where he's at. Yeah. Where's that? So, that, that, that again, I'm thinking, Bob, this is basic stuff. Yeah, you could guess this. You could you could guess this. This is pretty basic stuff. I mean, the 1970s mm-hmm. love was arbitrary. I said, it's not enough. So, but then I said, guys, now I had new evidence so I could go back to Annapolis and reopen this case. I had I had a name, date of birth, and all. So I went yeah. back to Annapolis and went back to the public library. And again, this is, again, days before the internet. So I t- talked to the library, and she tried to find all the information she could on back with, and they didn't have hardly anything in the public library. Turns out he wasn't very famous at all. He was a kind of a minor portrait painter during the late 1800s, early 1900s. She told me, he said, well, she says, I'll tell you what. He says, I want you to go to the art museum library. They have a much more extensive art history library than, than we do. So I did that. That's so why I drove up to Northside Annapolis to the art museum and went to the art museum library. And this lady was very cooperative and she found me some more stuff. But unfortunately for me at the time, all she found was more confirmation by a scene. She gave me, she didn't have, she'd have maybe a page at the most. Yeah. Number one, that Beckwith, I told you when I come over to the building after I died, I thought it was fall, late fall. Well, he died in October that year. Mm. And also I said there was a, it was a huge city. There was, you know, lights to the east horizon where he died in New York City. Mm. It also said that he didn't like painting portraits, but he did it because he needed the money. <laughs> I remember telling that. And also it said his portraits were full of sun and bright color. I remember the painting with the fireplace was full of sun and bright color. Yep. But also I noticed when I was reading this thing, there was a little footnote that said this information came from the diaries of J. Carol Beckwith on file now at the National Game Design in New York City. Mm. So I knew exactly what I had to do. <laughs> so I, I got home and I contacted the National Game Design in New York City, see if I could uh, look at the diaries, check them out. You know, I thought maybe this would find the answer to what, what I had seen. Yeah. Of course, they said, no, no, we don't get them out. They're, they're much too fragile. They said, however, there have been microfilm copies made that you can get through the archives of American art, Aaron Library alone. Yeah. So I set that set that up. So I got home. And when I so I was waiting, so I set it up. They said it'd be about two weeks. So I got home and I went, listened to my tape again and wrote down everything I had seen during the regression that could be verified. Everything I had said. And yeah. I found there were 28 things I had said during it. That could be verified. Yeah. So anyway, a couple weeks later, they called and said, this microfilm's here. Great. So I ran over to the library. But unfortunately, I found out that uh, Beckwith was a very avid diary keeper. Hmm. He had started his diary at age 19 and made his last entry the day before he died at age 65. There were 17,000 17, pages. <laughs> now, you know, what do you do? What do you do? But I, interesting enough, I found that he'd also, the last year of his life, he had started an autobiography. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe I, maybe I read that, that would help. But actually, he 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 died in like I said, nineteen seventeen in October. So he didn't have much time to do it, and he only had he only went up to age twenty one in his diary. So it wasn't really that much help. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so I find so I've so I am, but I've also found that someone 
had for some reason, I'm not sure why, had exerted, have exerted certain pages of the diary and I had typed them. I'm not sure why they taped them all by 50 pages of diary. I typed it. Hmm. And I was, and I, so I read it and he was talking about, he was talking about, even he went to school in France, hmm. the art school in France. He was in stuff. He was roommates with John Singer Sargent, the very famous American painter. They were yes. roommates there. But interesting enough, in one section, when he had, during a summer vacation, he said he spent it in Venice and he lived in Venice on burnt eggs and wine. <laughs> and I remember seeing him drinking the wine, the wine there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but anyway, I did find three more confirmations of this thing. Number one, that he drank, he did drink wine, obviously. They also, they didn't have any children. They didn't yeah. say why. They said they didn't have any children. That he'd one time visited a large estate to painting. He had done painting in the gardens at the Palace of Versailles. I'd see myself in painting. But again, what do you do? What do you do now? I'm, how you go? What are you, 17,000? I only had this for two weeks. You got 17,000 pages. You can't go through that. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I didn't know what to do. I do. I, you know, I really knew I needed help. Mm. I need this to not use something you can't do alone. Now, I don't know if my wife was also a detective, by the way, at the police department. She was a child abuse detective for a lot of years at the police yeah. department. So I thought, well, I need, you know what I need? Because I had one of my biggest admonishments to all my officers was don't get personally involved in your cases. If you get personally involved in your cases, you lose sight, you lose your peripheral vision, you're self directed in the case. Right. But boy, I, I, I was in this thing. Yeah, I was really personally involved in this case. I knew what I needed <laughs> a fresh set of eyes. So I told my, my wife at this time, didn't still didn't know what I was doing. She didn't have any clue what I was doing on all this stuff. And so I basically got her side and told her what I'd found and what I'd done and everything. She thought it was nuts. She really <laughs> did. She thought I was nuts. Yeah. So, yeah, she didn't believe any of it. it, it she and actually it got on the point finally. And I tried to explain to her and showed what I'd found and everything and all the information I'd gathered. And she basically says, hey, you just, you've seen a movie or a book by him. And I tried to tell her, there are all no movies by him. There are no books by him. He wasn't famous. He was yeah. simply a minor portrait painter. But she says, no, I'll find it. I'll <laughs> investigate. And that's really basically what I wanted. Because I needed, a, she was an excellent detective. Yeah. She really was. And I needed a, a fresh set of eyes with no, you know, with no, you know, complete third party eyes to look at it. So she did. And she couldn't find anything. Absolutely nothing mm-hmm. more than I did. But her basic advice that was me to me was, okay, shut up. Yeah. You found it. Shut up. I says, captains don't go spouting this. Captains don't go talking about this. Please, captains don't do this. You know, it'll, it'll kill your career. It's police department. You start spouting this off. Yeah. You know, and I thought, yeah, you know what? She's right. She's probably right. So I basically sent the microphone back. So I'm going to forget about it. But then I won't go into them very long. I ran into, I ran into some interesting third party, some party, some, uh, police department i ran into interesting things about people who had 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 uh paranormal experiences yeah at the police department yeah and i ran i ran into three different cases of this right i like i said i don't think we have time to go into that big enough to convince me that maybe i need to investigate it after all yeah so i i reordered the diaries and made hard copies of them <laughs> and so i actually i sat down and took me over a year i read every single page mm of the diary every single page yeah. and interesting enough i what i kept finding i was always what i was hoping at the time was to find this one disproving fact <laughs> one thing that didn't that wasn't right because then you know it's, this is not true if you could like for example he said he couldn't he didn't have children because wife couldn't have children if it, if they if they you know if they if there wasn't that wasn't the truth that wasn't the reason why then it wasn't true 
Mm -hmm. You know, these I wanted to find one disturbing fact and I could brush it off say as untrue. But interesting enough, as I kept reading the diary, all I kept finding is one confirmation after another. Yeah. For example, on uh, October 21st, uh, 29 years before he died to the day, his wife had a very, very difficult miscarriage. They wanted to have children. And after that, you couldn't have children. Yeah. And I kept finding them one after another. I, I had 28 and I kept taking them off one after another after another. And it, it was getting scary at the yeah. time because I couldn't find a single thing. I kept finding one after another. For example, his wife, I saw her playing piano for a bunch of friends. And yeah, she did. They had a piano at their house. They also had a summer home in the Catskills and she played the piano there. You know, mm -hmm. it, it kept finding one thing out there. What really, though, really finished me up well, is when I got to December 5th, 1886, I, I had said during the very last of my session, she died of a blood clot. The doctor said blood clot. I didn't know who this person was I was talking about, only it was a woman very important to him. Well, I knew that could be two women. It'd be either his mother or his wife. Mm -hmm. They were both very important. His mother more it was really important because she's the only one who encouraged him to become an artist. His dad always told him that was the best way he knew he was starving to death, <laughs> to be an artist. Yeah. <laughs> but he, his mother encouraged him and all that. Well, on, in his diary on December 5th, he talked about his mother being in church mm -hmm. and having a stroke caused by a blood clot and dying. Yeah. I think that was the one that, threw, that finally threw me over the edge. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, you can get you can guess a lot of things about a people. You can't guess what his mother died of. I mean, I think that was one. And then I, I eventually ended up proving all 28. Yeah. All, all 28 things. And again, you know, everybody wishes every hobbit I take wish he had a case where he had 28 pieces of evidence to prove it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, what, I mean, what, what can I say? And I mean, I had to finally accept it, that this wasn't imagination. This wasn't anything. This was a, a, a real true past life. Yeah. But, yes. but the problem, the problem being, of course, now finding this out and, and knowing this is a little different than accepting it. Right. Because, I mean, once I realized that, yeah, you have to look back at your life and think, okay, what does this mean? This means that everything you thought about how the way the world works is wrong. Yeah. All the people you thought were kind of screwballs and goofy people, what they believed in is true. What you believed in is not true. I could, I always thought reincarnating people past life, people were goofy people. I really, I thought nobody really believed. That's all foolishness. Nobody really believes in their past life. And mm -hmm. I realized I was wrong and they were right. I would believe in the completely false things and they would believe in the correct thing. And that's, that's a hard thing to do Yeah. to really accept that in your life, to, to say, realize that you've been wrong your whole life, your whole out, your whole outlook on the universe is wrong. Yes. That, that was tough. That was really tough. And as you might imagine, things didn't go well at the police department. <laughs> My wife had said they didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. No, it did. Yeah. It went, it went ugly. <sighs> but where you sit today, do you regret going public and writing this book, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic, um, and sharing no, this? Not at all. Hmm. The problem was there was just too much information, too much proof. And some of this, some of the stuff was almost really dumped, it was dumped in my lap. It really truly was. I had yeah. information occasionally would come out of nowhere and dump my lap. For example, in his uh, diary, Beckwith often talks about working on his scrapbooks. Yes. I, I couldn't find out where her scrapbooks were at. Where, what had they been destroyed? Where they at? They worked yeah. at that National Design. So I was talking one day to an art dealer about, I was trying to find about the information about the painting. Uh -huh. And he said, well, let me give you, put you in contact with the expert on American art I use. Apparently there was a lot of forged American art. So I called her and we were talking about it. And just out of the blue, she said, you know what scrapbooks were at the New York Historical uh -huh. Society, don't you? 
It's yeah. this kind of thing. Thing kept kept up my lap. Yeah. And it was just too much information, and that I I didn't feel it was right for me to keep myself. That mm-hmm. I need to, I need to share this information. I really did. So yeah, I would do it again. I I realized that it kind of it it ended my police career pretty well, but. Mm-hmm. It's just one of the consequences you have to face when you tell it. When you tell something like this, but I, I could not not tell it. I really couldn't. I felt it was too important. And I, again, I was getting information from somewhere. I'm not sure. Like finding the Don Frenchback woman. Come on, yeah. that's almost too big a coincidence yeah. to be a coincidence. Yes, you know. Yeah. So, I, it, so I have the question. You know, one of the experiences you had during the regression was the opportunity. And this is something. This is a theme that I've heard. Um, uh, regarding past life regression and experiences of past lives for many people that you have the opportunity at the end of the life to really understand what the meaning of that life was. And I'm curious, now that you have shared this story, made the brave choice to do so, to share this information so that others might benefit from it, when you look back on this life, what do you think the meaning or the reason will be? I hope it's, I hope it was this book. <laughs> I, again, you don't know. I mean, you, you know, I'm hoping that's it because it seems, you know, if I look at my life and again, I didn't want to be a police officer. I really didn't. But again, I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. But again, being a police officer gave me the the skills I needed to find, to find all the information I needed. For example, in one book I've researched on Beckwith that said he died in 1970, 17, and say he died by suicide. Mm. Now, I didn't, I didn't recall any of that kind of thing. So, I called and I found out that he he had died in New York City. So I called the, I was the head of homicide. So I called the New York City uh, uh, coroner, actually, you know, and asked him, I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Captain Snow, the VIP department. I'd like to know what a person died of. As he was the coroner, he's a medical examiner, different in every state. Anyway, the medical examiner in New York City. And I, he didn't have funny, I, he didn't even ask why I'd want to care about somebody died in 1970. He <laughs> said, yeah, oh, sure, no problem. So he looked it up and he actually sent me a copy of the death ticket. And he had died of endocarditis, uh-huh. which is an infection of heart valves. Yeah. But see, I don't think an ordinary person could call the the uh, medical examiner in New York City and get that kind of cooperation. Yeah. Actually, he, he even sent me a copy of the death certificate, as a matter of fact. Oh, and, you know, I've, I've, it makes me so sad. We've got about a minute left. And so I hate to bring this to a close, but I just I have to. This is what I was saying at the beginning. I feel like this was you were so uniquely positioned to bring forward this information. You treated it like a case and did the hard research that not many individuals could or would do. Um, And so thank you, Bob Snow, for having brought forward your story and been brave enough to tell it. Um, The book is Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. Um, I've been speaking today with Robert Bob Snow. Um, And uh, Bob, thank you. Thank you for having been a guest on Sunny in Seattle. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So for everyone else out there, I encourage you to pick up a copy of this incredible, unique story. And I thank you for joining us here today on Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy. Thank you, Benny, for running the board. And we will see you next week.